This conversation's on the arts. I'm Mary Krieger. I'm delighted to have as my guest today Susan Anderson, an independent curator, an art historian, and expert on California art before 1965. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I wanted to invite you because I read your wonderful essay in American Scene Painting, California, Art of the 30s and 40s. And my feeling was that this is a subject that's really particularly relevant now um, as we go through this period of recession. I was thinking about how, how did artists survive? How, what did artists do? How did they live in this period of the 30s and 40s in California? And coming upon your essay, I found these California, what do they call the California regional artists? I wanted to ask you, first of all, how did you come to this subject? I mean, the, this is a particular area of interest of yours, and, and, and how, how did it, it happen that you became interested in, in these particular artists? When I was in graduate school, I did an internship out at, at Pomona College, and they had a large collection of prints, American regionalist prints, by some of the people like um, Benton and Curry and Grant Wood, and became interested in, first, their prints. And these were from East that, Coast artists. These were middle, Midwestern, East Coast. Not too many California artists were among this group. And so um, I became interested in that and did a small exhibition on that. And uh, while I was doing that, the um, museum in Santa Barbara decided they wanted to do an exhibition. But they couldn't find anybody that knew anything about regionalist work. So they invited me to put together a show that um, focused on the California School, as it's come to be called. And that was a group of artists here in California during the 1930s and 1940s that worked in a, um, in a regionalist And what do mode. you mean by regionalist work? Well, during the, 19, during the 1930s, this um, movement called the American Scene Movement arose. And some of the artists were dubbed regionalists, and some were dubbed social realists. Regionalists, by and large, created positive views of the urban and rural world around them. Who are the most important artists of the California school? The ones that, that come to mind first are Lee Blair, Rex Brandt, Phil Dyke, Emil Cosa Jr., Ben Messick, Bars Miller, Phil Paradise, Paul Sample, and of course Miller Cheats, who was sort of almost the leader of that group. And these were the ones who painted the sort of the California dream in a way. They projected the California dream out to the rest of the country because their work was in all of the, you know, Art Digest and all of the main, the top magazines were showing their work at that time. And a lot of the way people started thinking about California as being this mecca for, you know, um, this, this life on the beaches and such, it started then. Yes. They started, you know, one of, um, one of Phil Dyke's early paintings from about 1932 is of a surfer coming up the steps at the beach. And this, this painting was known nationally. So these people sort of projected this image of California, of this California dream, out to the rest of the country. And I think it provided a lot, uh, it provided a respite from these difficulties that everybody was experiencing. 
during the Depression. There was a beach. There were the beaches, and there were the palm trees, and there was light, and the sky was blue. So, and they were living through the Dust Bowl. The dust, the dust bowl. A lot of these people, um, Milford Zorns came from the dust bowl. Did he really? He came from the dust bowl. He was, um, he came out here with his family as a result of being displaced because of the difficulties. His family was a farming um, family in, I think, Oklahoma and Idaho, and um, they had to come out here to escape the difficulties there. And he just happened to be incredibly talented in an early age. And he was one of the ones that Miller Cheats recognized as being somebody that had talent. And Miller Cheats would take these, you know, take these people along and help them, um, help them get jobs or get painting commissions and things like that. Social realists created more um, views of art, views that were less positive and more critical of what was happening. And um, Philip Guston in California, who was then Philip Goldstein, would have been the one that I would think of first off, but there was also Fletcher Martin. In Southern California, which is where I would say it was really centered, there were three, I think, three main things that influenced them in the development of their art. One was the Southern California environment itself, which it was pleasant enough to paint outdoors year-round. Yes. And, and so they did. They could work outdoors pretty much year-round. And, and because of that, they, they started using watercolor because watercolor was portable and they could carry it around and, and do whatever they wanted. Along with that, in Southern California, we had the film industry. And during the Depression, especially, the film industry was one of the things that kept Southern California going. And it was one of the ways that artists survived, was by going into the film industry. So these artists worked in their day jobs in the film industry? Exactly. And a lot of them worked for Disney. And and which ones? Um, Phil Dyke worked for Disney. And he was was probably the one that was the primary. Uh, Let's see. A lot of them worked in either the film industry as a background artist, Charles Paisant. Um, they all sort of dipped in and out of it. Um, Phil Dyke was the one that was at Disney the longest. And he worked on Fantasia, didn't he? And he worked exactly. On, he worked on some of these major right. uh, films. And they did these things in watercolor originally? They, worked they in, actually they worked, in, worked watercolor in watercolor at before at, at, at the studios, yes. And so, um, so that was a major influence. Because Disney, although at the at the time that Disney was developing, it wasn't it was a little bit darker than than we picture it now. You have to kind of go back and look at the early things. But you know, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? You know, the Three Little Pigs was a big one of his first big cartoons, and it was clearly sort of a regionalist vision, and really was speaking out sort of against you know the big bad wolf. And who was the big bad wolf? Probably just the difficulties of the times, you know, the just the economic times. difficulties. So, and even Thomas Habeno, I'm looking at your, at your this catalog here with your essay, and, and your, it shows a piece of, of Thomas Harbenton, who's incorporating um, images from Disney in this um, piece into his mural, which he did for the Whitney. 
So because people don't think, people think of the high and low as being... As something that something started, now. <laughs> started now. Started <laughs> now. Right. But these artists were actually using these, actual, these images right, actually, in their work. High and low really s- sort of started back back then because the Disney because the Disney artists were sort of the epitome of that. They not only were fine art artists who were who were painting and, and trying to sell their work, you know, admittedly, they didn't sell a lot of work, but um, they could sell their work. But they had exhibitions. They had exhibitions, definitely. They had galleries, you know, that showed their work. They they exhibited across the country. They exhibited in all the nation, big national um, exhibitions. And Miller Cheats, who was sort of one of the the leaders of this California watercolor movement, was very nationally respected, and really was pretty much at the same level in terms of of the kind of um, reviews that he got and the amount of attention he got as somebody like Grant Wood or Thomas Hart Benton at that time. Did he teach as well? He taught and he um, he was an architect. He he was sort of one of these all, you know, Renaissance men. He, he did just about everything you can think of. He was also um, involved in the, the WPA um, at that time in Los Angeles. And that's another area of big influence on these people. There were there were different projects of the federal government, and the the one that was probably the most um, prestigious was called the Treasury Section. And for that, you actually had to compete. You had to enter your work in a major competition to be selected for something like a U.S. Post Office. So some of the regional artists who were connected to this California school, who got those prestigious mural commissions are Barst Miller, Fletcher Martin, <coughs> George Sumergen, Edward Biberman was somewhat connected to this group, Milford Zorns, um, Paul Sample, uh, Miller Cheats, probably. So what, what kind of work was Rex Brandt and um, Milford Zorns doing? Rex Brantz and Milford Zorns were primarily watercolor painters, especially Milford Zorns. And he did go through a period where he was um, going down and, and painting um, groups of, of people that were unemployed, for example. Or, um, But he was mostly a, a landscape painter. These people were mostly landscape painters. And although they would often um, paint the typical regionalist motif of perhaps a farmer, or somebody at work. This is this is a um, a movement that started really at Chenard Art School, where they Art Institute, where they were all together, kind of coming um, coming along as artists. So what do you mean? Do they teach it? They I mean, they started out as students there. <clears throat> some then some of them became teachers, but they started out in about 1927, just as this group of artists that enjoyed painting together. And um, so it was really a it really started before the depression. I see. In a certain sense, they were already kind of, uh, you know, in this in this mode of doing watercolors, and um, then they, then the depression hit in 1929, and for a brief period, this group of artists was more socially conscious and creating works that were, that were more socially. Um, most not really social realists because they weren't um, as as critical, 
but works that really showed the um, that really touched on yeah, the issues of the times the, the, exactly the, the, the right people coming from um, the Dust Bowl and all of that right they, they did painting they yes they 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 were much more involved in painting things that that um, that focused on the social problems of the day then in about 1934 Thomas Hart Benton was put on the cover of either Life or Time magazine. And and this whole movement of California regionalism kind of came to the fore and became something that was known across the country. And at about that time, also, the Public Works of Art project started, and the U.S. government got involved in hiring artists. And what... I think and Miller so Chief, what? Wasn't he hired as a man? Um, he was one character? of the administrators of the project in Southern California. So what kind of happened is, at the point at which the government got involved in the, in this and started hiring artists, the art began to take on sort of more of um, an American, you know, began to look more towards the American dream, in a way, and and artists in order to get. Um, a mural project or whatever, they had to come up with a project that was, um, that fell under certain um, rules and regulations. In other words, it had to have a, um, it had to be a topic that was pertinent to either American history or had to do with regional, uh, a regional focus, um, that sort of thing. So. Um, at that point, I do think that it sort of changed a little bit. I think it was a little bit more, um, it was a little bit more critical of what was going on <coughs> until it became an official style, let's say. I see. So, the, so they were commissioned to do projects. That some of these, any of these projects still exist? In oh California? yes, in, um, they exist in I post mean, offices. The murals are in, in many post offices still. You can still see them. You, may, you might have to go into a back room to, to find it, but it, it, they're still there in almost every post office, really? every U.S. post office. Um, they're also um, probably one of the more interesting ones by Philip Gustin and Reuben Kadish is at the City of Hope, and that one is still there. You can visit that one. And where is it? And that one was that, that does have political content in it. That's in uh, um, Duarte, I think. Okay. I think it's in Duarte. Yeah. So, so anyway, but but not all artists had to paint a mural. Right. The U.S. government actually paid artists a stipend every month month just to paint. And just to paint. We had Dorothy Lange and other people. Right. And so that that was a whole other section. But you know, many some of these artists. They just got, you know, $92 a month or something like that it, just to paint. So they could just go out and paint. And, you know, they could do quite a bit. They could do quite a few paintings um, on their stipend. And, um, and, and it wasn't too expensive. And they could live off that. So that was another way that they, that, that was another influence on them, but it was also another way for them to survive. The other really big influence on the California school was the Mexican muralists, because they were here in California. 
they painting murals. Did, like, they knew them personally. Did, they knew them personally. Um, David Alfaro Siqueiros, he was here in Los Angeles and painted his first mural in Los Angeles at Chenard with the artists as part of his, you know, a keep, his, his group. And... Um, but Diego Rivera... Diego Rivera was in San Francisco. He was he was up in San Francisco. Did they know Did they know him also? Or? They they met him and then also out at um, and then Orozco in 1931 also painted a mural out at script at um, Pomona College in the Frary Dining Hall, which is still there. So these people were here, and you could actually interact with them to a limited degree. But Siqueiros actually used these Chenard students to paint his greatest mural in the United States, which is America Tropical, which is in um, downtown um, L.A., in the, the plaza down there. So he, you know, he well, used, he he used these the same artists, these yeah. same artists. So what they got from Siqueiros was, you know, an interesting greater boldness of form, um, more modernist approach to form, um, experimentation with materials, Siqueiros um, kind of did wacky things, you know, in, in um, teaching them mural painting. It's a it's a wet into wet, um, it's a wet wet into wet technique. medium technique. Yeah, yeah. And so was watercolor painting. The way these guys developed it, so the water would the they wet the paper and then they paint into a wet page, and um, and you have to, you, you can't go back and make corrections. Just like it, they're very similar mediums. But they, did, they, did these artists continue to do um, paintings after this? I mean, I mean, would they take the watercolor and go home and make, make an oil painting? Actually, most of the time they didn't. They considered it a medium unto itself. Most of them also did oils, did works on oil, but they didn't. They didn't just go out and paint watercolors thinking they were going to take that back and use it. You know, it wasn't a study. In other words, they, they painted big watercolors, full sheets of watercolor, 30 by 40 inches in one city, outdoors, on the spot. And, um, and you have to have a tremendous amount of um, expertise in order to do that because once the watercolor dries, you can't go erase it. You can't paint over it. So this, what, what it did, in other words, was develop this spontaneous gesture. And it, in my mind, it fed right into the whole ABEX thing because these guys had to be totally spontaneous. They had to not think too much about what they were doing. And yet they also had to have a really good grasp of design and um, composition innate so that what came out, even though they were painting very quickly, what came out was was well designed and and um, and you don't see very much pencil mark, you don't see much pencil underneath the watercolor. Either. It was a very spontaneous thing, and their brush strokes were very open and very, very free. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the scene in the Pollock movie when they talked about how uh, somebody, had, I think Pollock had studied with Denton, and. Um, Anyway, I, had no, I did not realize he that did. until I and saw the movie. But. And Pollock also was um, was here in Los Angeles, of course. He grew up here. And he did was he really? friends He was friends with Reuben Kadish and, um, and Philip Gustin, then Goldstein. And um, they all went to school together. And, really? And even created 
projects here before Pollock went to New York. He went to um, school at Manual Arts High School. Manual Arts High School. Really? I didn't mm-hmm. know that. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the very beginning of Chouinard itself. How did how did Chouinard come about? That, was that the first art school in Los Angeles, or were there art probably not them? the first, but the first that that held on for a long time, and that um, you know held on as long as it became until it became Cal Arts. And Nelbert Chouinard was um, was the one who started it, and I, you know, I can't remember exactly what year, but certainly by the 20s it was going strong, and um, it may have been 1921, but it may have been earlier. Was it a, considered like the equivalent, like the Art Students League in New York, or these kind of? I mean, was I'd there, say was so. That, was there a relationship between these schools, or, or um, um, really, in this period that we're talking about? There weren't that many art schools, and I'm not sure exactly when um, some of the other ones started. Certainly by the late 30s, there were more, but in this late 20s period, when when these artists were getting going, um, there was probably just a couple of other schools in town where you could go and study. And at Chenard, the people that were there, generally the teachers, were sort of considered the progressives at that time. Like who? Like who? Um, Clarence Hinkle was there. He was also somebody that was very active in the Laguna Art Association here. Carter Pruitt. I'm trying to think of these names. Um, F. Tolls Chamberlain. Lawrence Murphy. Um, those were sort of the ones that stood out and that these artists were, were close to. And they, um, especially Clarence Hinkle and probably F. Tolls Chamberlain, um, they were they were part of the so-called progressive art movement in the 1920s that were that were um, much more interested in post-impressionism instead of impressionism, and they were sort of trying to break away from a more impressionist um, from the impressionism that was kind of had a stronghold at that time right. when these. When these, when this group was coming up, when they were at the school learning, they got a pretty, um, they got a really sound education in drawing and, you know, a very traditional education. And but the artists that they were learning from were were a sort of of a, you know, considered the progressive modernists yes. of Los Angeles, and um, so it was sort of the place to be. And and what what happened is this group of artists, you know, because when the depression hit, especially and things got really tough, they tended to really hang together and help each other out. And so in Los in Los Angeles, instead of artists at that time being really um, competitive, they in fact were the opposite, and really? they really helped each other along. And if who one, was best friends with who was friends with them? Oh, you know, like this whole group was Miller Cheats, Phil Dyke, Bars Miller, um, Rex Brandt. Um, it was a pretty large group of them, and they even um, they even were were fairly um, had a fairly good relationship with the artists in Northern California, rather than also being competitive, which tends to happen between North and South even yeah. still today. Yeah. So. Um, did they have dinners together? They dinners together. They had studios together. They 
they, um, if one was going to send a painting off to the National Academy of Design for a show, you know, he'd say, hey, you really ought to, you know, send yours too. And so they supported each other. And they, um, and, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why they, they were nationally, be, became nationally prominent, because they did have the guts to send their work off to, to exhibitions in all of the top um, New York and, you know, the Philadelphia museums and all of that, because at that time it was, it was pretty common to have these large exhibitions once a year where you would send your work and hope you got in, and then you, you know. So are these pieces in collections in, all, in other Actually, cities? some of them, some of them, um, there are still some paintings that were bought that still remain in, um, I think, um, this one particular exhibition I did, we borrowed from um, the National Museum of American Art, the... Um, Museum of Modern Art in New York, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, um, the U.S. Treasury Department, Washington, D.C. Had, had, had things still. Um, so there's, there's still... Yeah. The paintings are still out there. There's... Um, a couple of paintings always on view at Los Angeles County Museum of Art by Miller Cheats. And they're, and regional, you know, exhibitions on these people come up every now and then in regional museums and such. And um, what do you think sort of ended, I mean, Chouinard did change. Chouinard did become a different, I mean, as we think of Chouinard now, I mean, a lot of people in the contemporary art world, we think of it more of a place where some of the light and space artists came from. Um, what do you think happened in between? I think what actually really happened was World War II. And when World War II hit, these people, they got siphoned off into the war effort. Some of them became official artists for either Life magazine or for the U.S. government. Did Miller Sheets, for example, was sent to India by Life, and he did paintings of... Um, what was happening there. Bars Miller was, I think, in charge of the whole art combat unit of the U.S. government in the Pacific. And he, um, he and, and some of the other artists made, you know, a lot of paintings of, of the war effort. They, um, this is one that Millard Sheets did called Dead Tank Captain. Some of them are quite poignant. Here's one that Paul Sample did. He was another very important artist in Southern California and one of the ones that did um, more social realist. You know, when I say social realist, the, the, this group of artists, they really always kind of stuck to a middle ground. They put social commentary in, but by and large it was a, still a fairly positive um, portrayal overall. So here's one that's just more like a, a real combat image. Yeah. And where did these artists show? Were there galleries at, at, at the time? Um, who, um, who Dalzell were? Hatfield showed them and Earl Stendhal. Stendhal and who were they? Galleries. Who, 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 they were some of the top galleries in the 1930s. And um, they were very supportive 
of of these artists. And did they show Tamsar Benton as well and other people? They oh. did. They they sort of mixed it up, and um, Miller Cheats at one point became head of the um, of the exhibition program at the L.A. County Fair, and believe it or not, they did some of the most amazing exhibitions. I think it's starting in about 1931, and they would bring they would bring artists from across the country and even Europe. They would bring their work in and and have incredible exhibitions. And so they would also mix the California guys up with people like Reginald Marsh or um, Charles Birchfield, Edward Hopper, more established American scene painters. So um, so they were they were quite aware of what was going on, of course, not just through magazines, but also through seeing the actual works because they were brought here to L.A. in exhibitions both at Hatfield, Stendhal, and then at the L.A. County Fair. Amazing. Miller Sheets was the most famous. And, and, and how did he become the leader? I mean, what, what was his background? He was sort of a, he, he was an impresarial character. He just had that in him. And was he originally from California? He, he was. He was originally from California. Um, most of these people were born and raised in California, and that was the big difference, is that during the previous period of the Impressionist period, and even the artists that were more sort of the progressive post-Impressionists, many of them came from places outside, yes. from the East or from right. the Midwest, Chicago, New York. So they, they had those ties, which, you know, they, when they came out here, they were already famous in Chicago, or they had already, you know, or had some fame in New York or something. And it continued when they got here to some extent. But these guys, no, they had to create this fame from the get-go because they were born and raised here. And um, Millard Sheets just had an impresarial, um, you know, very precocious way about him. And he was a tremendous painter from a very early age. He could, he could do anything. And... Um, he brought other people along. So a lot of them had, had a tremendous um, respect and affection for Miller Cheats. I mean, even the U.S. government, they hired him to. Right. On the other hand, at a certain point later on, Miller Cheats had sort of a stranglehold on the art scene, you know, in the 40s, which was being began to be seen as detrimental. And that's when the, the rub began with the abstract expressionist school against right. the American scene school. And you know these people fell out of out of favor, which is natural. Yeah, They're, they always have to be dethroned. One generation has to be dethroned by the next. Is there anything else about this period that you think um, our audience should uh, come away with? Well, I do think there is a parallel between that period and now, and I I think that. Um, The difficulties that artists face now are probably quite similar to the ones they faced then. However, I'm, I'm not sure that there's the same safety net. Yes. Um, without the WPA program at that time, I think that artists would have had a tremendous difficulty continuing to create their work. And um, although there's, you know, definitely some inferior and superior examples of what came out of the federal um, art projects. I, I do help, 
think it helped artists to continue to work and to have faith. Yes. And to um, and it and it brought them together also. Just the projects themselves helped bring them together, helped bring people together. And they created their own scene too. They created their own scene, and and the the, the other thing that was really interesting about the federal art projects is it got the average person interested in art. The average person was became quite interested in art. And because people were doing watercolors and other works on paper, prints and such, the average person could actually buy the work, too, yes. and hang it in their homes. So it That's was been difficult for a while, but maybe that will change. <laughs> maybe that we'll come back to that. They can actually afford the art. That would be a nice change of pace. Um, Anyway, thank you so much. I think we have a wonderful, we've had a wonderful talk. I really enjoyed it. Well, and, thank you. Um, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for having me. <laughs>